0: Series on Church History. I just want to open up, reading Matthew chapter five, verses 44 and the beginning of 45. This is the command of Christ. He says, "But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven." Let's meditate on that as we study our class today. And uh, we've been going through Church History, of course, and uh, starting pretty much where Acts left off. Um, it's been a bit of a process of zooming in and zooming out. We talked about that in the past, so we're going to look in close detail or at maybe a small um, piece or tidbit from history and then we might at times back out and kind of get a wider view. So last week we really zoomed in when we looked at the Didache and we talked about the Didache as a document. It's really, you know, it's not representative of wider Christianity or Christian, Christian thought at that time. It's kind of anecdotal. It's a good example for where a church can end up if it's not careful. Um, some of the things that aren't so good, the didache we talked about. So that was really zooming in last week. And today we're, it's going to feel a little bit like we're zooming out again um, because we're going to look at a wider view of the church at the beginning of the second century. But we are going to talk We're going to zoom in a little bit because we are going to talk about that church specifically as it relates to uh, one individual. So again, just so we zoom out first, let's kind of get a a feeling for where we are in history and the context of of history. Uh, We talked about Nero again um, in the 60s AD. He died in 68 AD, the first Roman emperor to persecute the church. Uh, They have an actual official program of persecuting the church there in the city of Rome. He died in 68 AD. Immediately after he died, four emperors came in rapid succession. Basically, they played king of the hill for Rome, and then when the dust had settled, so to speak, the general Vespasian, who had been prosecuting the war in Judea, he was the new emperor. Vespasian was emperor for close to a decade, I think it was about nine years. Then he died, and his son Titus became emperor. Titus only lived a couple of years, and after that he died. And then Titus's T- 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 yeah. brother Vespasian's other son, Domitian, succeeded to the throne in 81 AD. Now, Domitian was the second emperor, according to the sources that I've been reading. He's the second emperor to persecute the church, uh, officially. And his persecution, it seems to have extended outside of Rome. Uh, unlike Nero, Nero was mainly just in Rome. Domitian kind of took it out uh, outside of Rome and into other areas. I don't know how widespread it was, but uh, it seems like during his time, according to Eusebius, he executed a good number of Christians. He also uh, banished, exiled a bunch of others. He had some relatives, uh, personal relatives who were Christians. He banished them from Rome. And according to Eusebius, again, early church tradition has it that the apostle John was exiled to Patmos during the Domitian persecu- persecution. Okay. So Domitian, he uh, reigned until about 96 AD. He wasn't a great emperor. He's one of the numerous Roman emperors who got assassinated. They killed him, they got fed up with him. So he was assassinated, and then a man named Nerva became emperor. Nerva had a short reign, lived a couple years, and then after he died, he had a an adopted son named Trajan who succeeded him in 98 AD. And now Trajan had a good long reign. He reigned from 98 AD, almost 20 years to 117 AD. And he's the emperor. His period is the one that we're going to really be in and looking at today. Trajan is famous for being a conquering emperor. He expanded the Roman Empire to the widest, the largest extent that it had. In fact, if you go online and you Google maps of the Roman Empire, you'll probably, most of them will be the Roman Empire in 117 AD under Trajan. Because that's when it was at its biggest. Uh, extended the, the empire to its largest size. The other thing that he's kind of famous for is he revived Christian persecution. Uh, in, while he's conquering places, he decides he wants pretty much all of his subjects to worship the pagan gods, the Roman gods. And the problem, of course, is that there's this burgeoning, this growing Christian sect, uh, this growing religious sect you could say, called the Christians who don't want to worship those gods. And so, under changing officially Christianity becomes illegal, and uh, he actually it actually carries with it the death penalty. Um, and so, a really a really uh, terrible persecution begins under him. There's a very famous letter. I wouldn't be surprised if quite a few of you have already encountered it or read it sometime. But it's a famous letter from a guy named Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger was a governor of a province called Bithynia. So if you look up at the map up here, we're going to be, a lot of our, what we look at today will be focused in this area, Asia Minor. Up here is Bithynia, that's a province of the Roman Empire, and Pliny the is the governor there, and as a Roman official, he naturally has the responsibility of, you know, carrying out trials and executions of Christians. That's his job. But it appears that he had some misgivings about that job. There were some problems that he encountered. He, he didn't. He kind of agreed with it. He agreed that the Christian religion needed to be quashed. Uh, he didn't think it was healthy for the empire. But practically speaking, he um, he thought it was going to be difficult to really carry out Trajan's orders. So I'm going to read that letter is online. It's in my bibliography, which I can show you guys later if you want. You can access it, it's, it's quite well known. I'm gonna read some parts of that letter to give you an idea of the gist of what he's getting at. So Pliny says, this letter to the Emperor Trajan, he says this, the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly a hymn to Christ, as to a God, and to bind themselves by oath not to do some crime but rather not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not falsify their trust, nor refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. And when this was over, it was their custom to depart and assemble again and to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. We're gonna talk about what he meant by that a little bit later, but not today. He goes on, he says, Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was, by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses, I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. I therefore postponed the investigation and hastened to consult you. In the first century and the second century Roman Empire, there was a certain logic to despising the Christians. There was a, some reasons why a lot of pagans didn't like believers, and. Um, Part of it was they didn't really know what believers believed and what believers practiced. And so there's this, you know, you could say conspiracy theories back then about what the Christians were really up to. So that was the first reason. But there was also this the reality of Hellenistic culture. In, in Hellenistic culture, for some people in a community not to worship the gods, that could affect the entire community. Because if the gods aren't pleased by the, the certain people uh, you know, who, who snub them, who don't worship them, they might punish the community or they, at the very least they might you know, withhold some of their blessings from the community. And then again, there's also the nationalistic perspective which we can really pick up Trajan. You know, If um, you know, the Roman gods are the ones that are giving the emperor victory wherever he's going, it can be very unpatriotic not to worship the gods. It can be un-Roman. Um, It can be a snub to the gods and even a snub to the emperor himself. And in fact, later on in Roman history, it is is exactly interpreted as that. We're going to come to another emperor later. So the Christians were seen as having a kind of belligerent atheism. That's actually what they called it at the time. They called Christians atheists because you have all these gods and the Christians are atheistically saying, no, they're not gods. So they called him atheists at the time. It was belligerent in the eyes of their pagan neighbors. It was seen as possibly a betrayal of the community, a betrayal of the province, and even a betrayal, of course, of, of the wider Roman Empire. So, based on the ingrained beliefs of a pagan society at that time, there were some very logical reasons why, you know, people hated the Christians. So Pliny kind of agreed. He did see that this was a, a in his mind, he, he agreed with Trajan that this was a damaging faith for people to have in the Roman Empire, but he had some problems with the practicality of it. First of all, he thought might, maybe it might just be a little, a tad over the top as far as um, being commensurate with, with the evil that the Christians were supposedly doing. Um, and secondly, there's, well, there's a lot of Christians. There's a whole lot of Christians in Bithynia. Pliny, in another part of his letter, he talked about how the temples were uh, increasingly less frequented. Fewer fewer people were going to the temples, indicating that a lot of people in Bithynia were becoming Christians, and we know that. So, um, But what that meant is, uh, you know, Pliny kind of throws up his hands and says, you can't kill them all. It's just impractical to try to hunt out all these people and try to kill them. So Trajan, Writes back to Pliny and Trajan basically agrees. And he he basically directs Pliny to have kind of a somewhat non-proactive, non-aggressive policy. And that goes like this. Effectively, um, Christians are not to be hunted. He's not going to try to round them all up, go on a witch hunt for all the Christians. Uh, they're just basically let you know let them be. Unless they're denounced. And no one can be denounced anonymously. So You can't you know, write in call an anonymous call and say, oh, I know someone's a Christian, but I'm not going to tell you my name. You've got to bring your ID. You've got to tell them who you are when you denounce a, a person as being a Christian. If a Christian is denounced, the Christian is to be given an opportunity, according to to curse Christ and offer a sacrifice to the Roman gods. If they don't do that, then they will be executed. So it's, a, it's still a very cruel policy, albeit unlike Nero, and possibly unlike Domitian, he's not trying to hunt out all the Christians. But it is a very strict policy nonetheless. Now this persecution, Trajan's persecution, is the persecution that took place at at the time of the uh, individual we want to look look at today. And that man's name is Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius under Trajan was arrested and condemned to die. Any questions, that? What was the primary religion of like? Bithynia? Primary, I'm going to assume they were Hellenistic. So it seems like uh, you had the Roman pantheon of gods and the Greek pantheon of gods that kind of corresponded to each other. Um, but basically, there's a whole bunch of gods that people uh, worship. And then you have the spin off sects as well that, you know, maybe Focus on one particular god or some lesser known god with some weird beliefs. But by and large, people are, um, you know, worshipping Zeus and so on, the whole pantheon of Greek and Roman gods. Yeah. Pagan, basically. All right, so Ignatius. Ignatius is the bishop of the church of Antioch. If you remember um, from the book of Acts, uh, there's two Antiochs, actually. There's Antioch in Syria, so that on our map up here is this one right here. Over here in Iconium, there's another little Antioch. That's a different one. So Ignatius is Bishop of Antioch. Antioch in the Bible was the first church, or was the first city where the gospel was widely preached to the Gentiles. And then it was also the Church of Antioch was the first church that sent out the Apostle Paul and Barnabas on their missionary, first missionary journey. So it's a very illustrious church, it's got a good, uh, strong history, it's um, it got a good bit of seniority. Uh, and So now we're looking at it when it's maybe 60, 70 years after Paul and Barnabas, and um, the uh, fellow who is in charge of, apparently the lead the, the bishop at Antioch is this fellow named Ignatius. Ignatius is an apostolic father, which as we mentioned, that means he knew an apostle, maybe multiple apostles. According to the sources that I read again in, in the church history, um, church tradition, uh, Ignatius knew the Apostle John. So uh, he was possibly, they, I think they say he was an auditor of the Apostle John. Um, and there's something a bit unusual as well. So he's been arrested, he's been condemned to die, but he's not being executed in Antioch. It seems like he was arrested in Antioch. Instead, he is on his way, when he writes a series of letters to the churches, he's on his way, escorted under guard to be thrown to the wild animals in Rome. Um, we don't know why for certain the Romans chose to give him that kind of special treatment, where we're not going to kill you now, we're going to kill you publicly in the, the Colosseum in, uh, in Rome. We're going to kill you there in front of everybody. Um, I don't know why we, why they chose to do that, maybe because he was a church leader. But the result is that because he's got to now travel from this spot all the way over to Rome in Italy. Uh, on those travels, a few things happen. One, he's able to write a series of letters to all these different churches in Asia Minor. Um, and then the other thing is uh, they he's able to be visited by a number of Christians and um, uh, from those churches as well. And they, of course, carry those letters on to the churches. And the result for us today, of course, is we now get to have these letters. A number of these letters have survived, and we get to see what this uh, great saint got to say, kind of as his final parting farewells to all these different churches, what he, the advice that he gave and the testimony that he had. Now, just to note on Ignatius as well, I believe Ignatius is really a great saint, at least from what I read of him. He's a really great uh, believer. I love him. Um, And I think that his faith and his love really show in what he writes. And again, his letters, I can direct you where you can find his letters. I definitely encourage everybody to read them. They're great letters. Um, They have a lot of good stuff inside of them. The reality, though, is in the course of church history, quite possibly, quite probably today as well, not everybody likes Ignatius. Some people have actually had a really big issue with the letters that he wrote. And uh, once we get into his letters, if you take time to read them yourself, I think you'll see why that was the case. Um, there's some things he says there that are indeed challenging, even disconcerting at first glance, uh, theologically, um, ecclesiologically, and so on. So originally I was hoping to kind of deal with Ignatius all at one, in one class today, but I think once I really got into it, I felt, well, maybe it's better to do two classes so today what I want to do is I really want to focus on the best things from Ignatius some of the best parts of his legacy and then next week what we'll do is we'll actually get into some of the more controversial parts of his letters and kind of deal with those and um, and then after that I go on vacation so we'll take a break and then when I come back we'll go on with the next apostolic father so it'll be a good it'll be good because we'll wrap up Ignatius right before I go there Okay, so the good things about Ignatius. Um, on his way to, as we said, on his way to Rome, he wrote seven letters. He's in Asia Minor. Um, I don't know where he wrote all his letters, but it seems like it might have been two places. Smyrna. Is Smyrna on it? Yeah, here's Smyrna. Smyrna might have been one of the places that he wrote some of his letters. And then there's another place you might recognize from Acts called Troax. And it's over here, opposite phrase. It's not all this math but um, that's where, remember, Paul went. And I think it was at Troas where Paul had the vision of the man from Macedonia. So um, in in that city, he also wrote a bunch of letters. There's a total of seven that have survived and are widely accepted as being authentically by uh, Ignatius. And those seven letters are, there's one to the church of Ephesus. Most of these cities, I think, are somewhere on this map. Ephesus, I think, is there, yep. There's one to the church of Ephesus, there's one to the church of Magnesia, I don't think you can see that here. There's one to the church called of Trales, there's one to the church of Rome, one to the church of Philadelphia, one to the church of Smyrna, and then the last one is to a fellow bishop and likewise apostolic father called Polycarp. Those are his seven letters. I'm not going to really go over each and every letter. I'm just going to take things out of those letters today that I think are really valuable for us to look at. So, reading these letters, what do I love about Ignatius? There's a lot, but I'm going to say three big things, three really big things that I love about Ignatius. The first thing I love about him is that he delights in Christ. He delights in God. Ignatius' letters contain... Statements about Jesus that really reveal a profound and adoring Christology. Ignatius thought about Christ, from the Christ. In his letter to Polycarp, Ignatius said this of Christ. He said, Wait for him, Jesus, who is above seasons, timeless, invisible, who for our sakes became visible, who cannot be touched, who cannot suffer, who for our sakes accepted suffering. Short little sentence. He packaged so much of Christology that we still believe today. It's uh, the idea that Jesus is God. He's he is um, he is God and yet he is man. As God, of course, uh, he is not subject to time. He's outside of time. He's invisible. He doesn't have a corporeal substance, and of course, he can't suffer. God doesn't suffer. We can't impose suffering on God. And yet, mysteriously, in the incarnation, God accepted all of those traits of humanity. And Ignatius gets that. To the Ephesians, Ignatius writes this. He says, there is one physician who is both flesh and spirit, born and yet not born, who is God in man, true life and death, both of Mary and of God, first passable and then impassable, Jesus Christ our Lord. Later on in in our study when we get to the 4th century, we're going to encounter a controversy called the Arian Controversy over the identity of the Son of God. And um, that's going to be very exciting. I'm looking forward to that. But for now suffice it to say that this 2nd century apostolic father has no doubts whatsoever about the identity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He knows that he is a member of the Godhead, that he is a deity. To the Magnesians, Ignatius described Christ as God's word proceeding from silence. Um, just, there's a lot, really, in all, in, throughout all of his letters that indicate um, some deep and thoughtful Christology. Kevin Hill, again, the editor of, of one of the books I've been um, resourcing here uh, on early church documents, he points out that it is unlikely that Ignatius conceived any of these ideas during the period of transportation to Rome. It wasn't like he got arrested, he thought about this, and then he sent off a bunch of letters. These statements reveal that Ignatius is a man who loves to meditate deeply on Christ according to the teaching of the apostles. So this is a man who's, who's had a lifetime of meditating on and delighting in Christ. That's the first thing that I love about Ignatius. The second thing that I love about Ignatius is that he understands the relationship of faith and works. Ignatius makes some very succinct statements about this relationship. He um it's especially, there's one, especially a few, especially in Ephesians, his letter to the Ephesians, where he describes what, what that is, more or less. Uh, the first thing he says very, very shortly, he says, Faith is incapable of the deeds of infidelity, and infidelity of the deeds of faith. And then a little later, he elaborates on that a bit more, and he says, No man who professes faith sins, nor does the one who has obtained love hate. The tree is known by its fruit, so they who profess to be of Christ will be seen by their deeds. It's an excellent confession by Ignatius. What he's saying is that good works are the inevitable fruit of true faith. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that good works produce faith. He doesn't say that good works do anything to make a person of Christ. What he says is that good works show a person, they, they make it seem that a person is of Christ. And I think not only does he nail it with that, uh, that theology, that doctrine, but that is also foundational to much of the rest that, that he says. As I said, we're gonna get into some controversial things. I think that this, this statement, such as this by Ignatius, really can serve as a key to even unlocking and interpreting some of the other things that he says. For now, suffice it to say, in summary, he understands the relationship of faith and works. The third thing that I love about Ignatius is that he loved selflessly and he had a shepherd's heart. And I think we observe this best, really, if we take time to read his letters. There's, in all of his letters, there's a tone and tenor that just suggests a deep love and, and, a, and a concern for uh, the churches and for the Christians. Again, Kevin Hill points out that these letters are, quote, emotionally charged. And you can really feel that when you read it. There's just an emotional charge to them. Um, for example, just one quick uh, quote from his letter to Polycarp. He said, it says to Polycarp, Welcoming your godly mind, which is fixed as if on a movable rock, I glory exceedingly that it was granted to me to see your blameless face. May I forever enjoy it in God." Just a very emotional statement to a fellow uh, pastor That's um, kind of a, you know, his farewell letter to him. And uh, you can really see that all over his letters. Ignatius' letters really overflow with affection. They overflow with concern for um, all of those throughout the church. And to some extent, being emotionally charged in, in, in his writing at this point makes a lot of sense. He's been condemned to die. He's on his way to execution. You'd expect anybody who's writing letters, farewell letters, would write emotionally charged letters. But what I notice is that his, his, his letters are not charged with anger. They're not charged with anxiety. They're not really even emotionally charged with triumphalism or defiance, so to speak. Um, now he does say, somewhat oddly, we'll talk about this next week as well, that he's kind of, he's eager, he says, to be fed to wild animals. It's kind of a weird thing um, about his letters. But I think if you read it very carefully and, and get at what he's saying, he's not, it's not triumphalism or defiance when he says that. There's something else that's going on there. We're going to talk about that uh, more next week. Instead, Ignatius' letters are charged with an evident affection for the believers and some amount of, you could say, distress. He's really concerned, as he's leaving that believers not be led astray by schisms or heresy or lapse under persecution. That's something he's deeply concerned about. So, and third and finally, as I said, he loved selflessly and he had a shepherd's so this. I really encourage you to take time to read some of his letters there. You'll get what I'm saying. Altogether, I think Ignatius is really a true model of a good pastor. Uh, he loved Jesus, he had a powerful faith, and he really loved the church. Any final questions? I have a couple of questions. Um, so you were talking about, uh, I think Pliny, the, uh, right, the one who was making all these accounts and torturing the demonesses. Um, so you mentioned something about superstitions that the Christians believe in. Did that include um, sort of this uh, maybe about the Lord's supper? body of Christ and like maybe taking that as cannibalism or something? Probably. Yeah, you, you brought up a point that we kind of just slightly touched on when we were quoting finding um, The Christians uh, Let me see if I can find it here real quick. I don't want to lose the space where I am now. But yeah, he did mention, oh here it is. Uh, he said um, I think you may have caught on to this. He said, when it was over, they there was their custom to depart and assemble again to partake of food. But ordinary and innocent food. What was he talking about there? In this time in history in the Roman church, some people believed there was this conspiracy theory theory going around out there that Christians were cannibals. They were drinking blood. And where do you think that comes from? The Lord's supplements, right? That's what most historians agree on. That probably people were hearing about what... Uh, Ignatius calls the Eucharist, uh, the Lord's Supper, communion, and getting completely the wrong idea, especially since a lot of their meetings seem to be in secret. And then after persecution gets started, well, then they're even more in secret because they don't want to get caught. So now the conspiracy theories get trumped up even more. People are getting the idea that the Christians are eating babies or something like that. So, yeah, that's great. Um, And I, I have another question. It kind of seemed like Pliny uh, was starting to understand that there's nuance of what Christians believe, like he's saying, oh, but it's ordinary and the food. Yeah. And so when he was talking about how Christians come together and make an oath not to commit adultery, do all those things, did they understand adultery in terms of what the Bible? Probably not in terms of what the Bible says, but the Romans did have a concept of adultery. They had a concept of marriage, they had a concept of, of unfaithful sin. Um, and you know that because if you read the, the Roman historians, like we, we touched on before, Tacitus and Suetonius, they talk about it. Um, with that, with no reference necessarily to Judaism or the Christian Bible, uh, they definitely understood basically what adultery was. Yeah. Good. Any other questions? Okay. So. I want us to leave here. This isn't really what all his letters are really focused on, but I do think there's one exhortation that Ignatius gives us, which I think is really valuable, and I thought it would be good for us to leave today considering this as an encouragement. And it's found in his letter to the Ephesians. It's immediately relevant to his own personal trial that he was going through at that time, and it's also, I think, appropriate for us in, in our time as well. So remember how we've been saying, and you know, we said in the beginning that At that time in the Roman Empire, Christians were widely despised. Um, Although no one at that time knew it, the Roman Empire was actually on a trajectory, very slow trajectory, to eventually become predominantly Christian, at least superficially. And at that time, once that would happen, the church would enjoy a great deal of peace, or at least for a time. Um, In our time, and again, we don't know the future, but in our time, it looks like the Western world is now departing an era when it was predominantly Christian. Again, even if it was just superficial. Um, and so as such, I think there are some parallels between Ignatius' time and place, and also our time and place. Um, there are a lot of differences, of course. I mean, obviously, for after all, for one thing, we're not being executed, at least not in this country. Um, but there are some common experiences nonetheless. Uh, most basically, we, can, we could say that the teachings of Christ in Ignatius' time and in our own, the teachings of the Apostles' submission to Jesus' lordship, uh, these are all increasingly spoken evil of. They were spoken evil of in Pliny's time, in Trajan's time. They were sp- There's being spoken of increase evil of increasingly so now. Uh, what we believed is thought of as being evil, wrong, unjust. Uh, in Pliny's words, the, word, the, the terms back then, and he's not the only Roman contemporary who used terms of this nature, but his terms were excessive, depraved superstition. That's how he described what Christians believed in his time. Today, they've exchanged those words. The world has new words now. They've got archaic, bigoted extremism. But you boil it down, it's the same thing. They don't understand what we believe. They don't understand the truth about Christ. And, at the end of the day, there's, there is and always will be a violent reaction to, in the world to the word and the will of Christ. So there is that common common ground there, I guess you could say. Now, Christians in the second century weren't surprised by this. I really don't think they were. They kind of knew about it. They, would, they expected it. Jesus had told them about it. And there had been persecutions before. So it wasn't something new to them. And I don't think we should be surprised either when we run into hostility. But Ignatius gives us us some good advice. In his letter to the Ephesians, one whole section he dedicates to give them an exhortation about this, knowing that they're going to be persecuted as well. He says this, Now pray unceasingly for others, for there is in them a hope of repentance that they may find God. Let them become your disciples, at least through your deeds. Be yourselves gentle in answer to their wrath. Be humble-minded. In answer to their proud speaking, offer prayer for their blasphemy, be steadfast in faith for their error, be gentle for their cruelty, and do not seek to retaliate. Let us be proved to be their brothers by our gentleness, and let us hasten to be imitators of the Lord. Who is more mistreated? Who is more destitute? Who is more condemned? In order that no weed of the devil be found in you, but that you may remain in all purity and sobriety in Jesus Christ, both in the flesh and in the spirit when we hear about anti-Christian laws and anti-Christian activism, when we hear about the things that people are saying about what we believe, how often do you pray for those people? How often do you take a moment and pray for the people behind those movements and those uh, uh, unjust laws against us? There's definitely an increasing and alarming form of wokeism now, and if you listen to what some of the leaders in that movement actually say about God, it's straight-up blasphemous times. But how many times, how often have we stopped when we hear their blasphemy and offer prayer in exchange for their blasphemy? And yet that's exactly what Jesus told us to do. And Ignatius reminds us that that's important. The thing about Ignatius too is he's, he's not just um, naively spewing out platitudes. Um, he's just not ready things to sound good. He's in the middle of it right now. He knows firsthand uh, what it means to have people hostile against you. He's he wrote to the Romans, he described what was going on, how they were treating him when he wrote to the church in Rome. He said this, he said, from Syria to Rome I am fighting with wild beasts, by land and by sea, by night and day, bound to ten leopards, that is a company of soldiers, and they become worse when treated kindly. So Ignatius knows, he's he's no, you know, he's no, not just trying to sound good or, or make a good point here, he knows what it means to treat people who hate him kindly. They become worse, according to him. But he also has the hope in mind. More important, more important, and this shows it's more important than voting the right way, so to speak, or, uh, you know, hoping that we get just laws passed. Although that's all very good, I think far more important is to, uh, is really to be praying for and exchanging blessing for reviling with people who uh, don't understand us and who hate us. Ignatius knew what the final goal was gonna be. He wrote again to the Ephesians, he said, in Christ I carry about my chains. He calls them the spiritual pearls in which may it be granted for me to rise again through your prayers. So he knows what the end is going to be, and that's where the relevance of the church is. Trajan's gone, Pliny the Younger is gone, and the Roman Empire is extinct. So much for Trajan's attempt to galvanize Roman loyalty but the church is still here, we have the same hope, it hasn't changed, and that's what we can be confident in as we deal with what we're nowadays. Okay.